Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled Applying Novel Strategies to the Treatment of Advanced Renal Cell Carcinoma, is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by educational grants from Exelixis Incorporated and Merck Sharp and Dome LLC. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. So our first speaker today is Dr. Jeremy Force. He's Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine and the Division of Medical Oncology at in the Breast Oncology Program at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And I think you will find that uh, he's an excellent speaker and he's going to give us a lot of good information. We're going to do a few questions first uh, to get everyone ready. Here's his disclosures. And uh, these are our learning objectives today. Uh, these are also in your handouts to remember that we're, he's going to summarize data supporting the recommended uh, role of newer evidence-based treatments for care of patients with HER2-positive breast cancer and integrate new therapies into patient care using evidence-based guidelines and sequencing for individual treatment plans for patients and to implement strategies to recognize treatment-related AEs and support uh, improved treatment adherence. All right, I'm going to turn this over now to Dr. Force and let him answer some of those questions for us. Dr. Force, welcome. Yeah, yeah. thank you. <clears throat> thank you for the opportunity to speak with you guys. Uh, really appreciate this and have and really enjoyed this venue with PCE. And thanks for the invitation to come back and talk again. I, I really do uh, greatly appreciate it. Well, let's get started. Uh, we've got a lot to cover today. You will learn a lot. There's been a lot of really great changes for our patients in the HER2 positive breast cancer landscape. And so just by Virtue of just an, a brief introduction, and then we'll really get into the data um, with her to focusing on her two positive breast cancer for this lecture. Um, just to reiterate that 15% of women with invasive breast cancer have the her two uh, proto oncogene being uh, enriched or amplified in their situation. That is the uh, oncogene that is driving the cancer growth. Um, these can be driven by amplification, um, not necessarily mutations. Uh, there is a small proportion of patients that have mutations without it, without um, amplifications, but we're not going to get into that. This is an aggressive phenotype. Um, thankfully, it was discovered, and uh, we now have drugs that target this in this subgroup of, of women. About 50% of the HER2-positive breast cancers will have hormone positivity in it. So we're not going to really dive into that too much, but endocrine therapy is needed in many situations to be given concomitantly. However, there's many drugs that we're going to talk about today where we don't have safety data with endocrine therapy and anti-HER2 therapy. And so that's, um, again, something that's not really addressed today, but I just wanted to point that out at the beginning, just so you're aware that just because it's HER2 positive, and if it's hormone positive as well, we you don't necessarily ignore the endocrine therapy backbone. It's just sometimes we might not have safety data for the combination. And so uh, one thing that is is really disturbing about HER2 positive disease, as well as triple negative breast cancer, is that uh, a significant portion of these patients will go on to develop uh, CNS relapses. And in part, that's because uh, it seems to be a sanctuary for um, brain metastases in general, those, those specific subtypes. Um, and the treatments that were now, which we'll go through today, have now kept people alive for years, along, uh, years later. There's a higher chance of, of intracranial disease developing. And you can see here that the cumulative incidence of CNS relapses in patients with HER2 positive early stage breast cancer. So these are patients who had early stage breast cancer. We don't know what, what their stage was. But you can see that if they, they received trastuzumab um, and died you know, without CNS relapse, that's the blue line on the bottom. But those who had observation um, alone, who didn't have uh, the necessary you know, HER2, anti-HER2 therapy, you can see that they're, you know, they had CNS relapse and, and there's a higher rate of death. Um, and, and that's, that's really um, in, in pretty you know, short time frames of one year of trastuzumab versus not. So um, what you should take home from that is that trastuzumab, which if you didn't know this, trastuzumab is on the WHO list of necessary medications in the world. So it is a good drug that should be offered to patients regardless of where you live. Um, 
I think in third world countries, it just becomes more challenging due to access to care. And uh, well, there's just a whole slew of things that we're not going to be able to get to today. Here's a, a really nice slide on the evolution of HER2 targeted agents, starting with, with you know 1984 when the HER2 gene was identified <clears throat> out of MIT, and uh, looking at how this is implicated in in amplification of breast cancer about a year later, and then HER3 being discovered, which does crosstalk with HER2 as a mechanism of resistance, all the way to you know when um, <clears throat> having uh, trastuzumab approved in 1998, um, mainly out of much of the work out of UCLA, um, and then leading to further drug development in 2007, lipitinib. That was actually fostered by uh, Neil Spector here at Duke University. Um, and, you know, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and tansine. That was also um, Kim Blackwell helped uh, to move that forward from Duke University. Um, and all the other slew of drugs that have now really ramped up that have changed the face of HER2 positive breast cancer. So we have all this huge repertoire now of, you know, five, six, seven drugs that we can provide patients. So th that's great. And there's actually a lot more coming down the line, um, that will change this disease entity. So recommended biomarker molecular testing for patients with breast cancer in general. Obviously, we always want to know um, breast cancer is unique in the sense that we will commonly re-biopsy disease to recheck biomarkers. It's not, this is not commonly done in other cancer subtypes. Usually it's a, it, there is a single, you know, target that's known to be amplified, whether it be, uh, BCR able, like in, in a CML, or there's just various different targets. Um, in breast cancer, we can see the switching of of these receptors about 15 to 20% of the time. So even at the time of progression, it's uh, it's been shown uh, also that tumor heterogeneity, is it's real in breast cancer, and it's probably real in many other cancers. It's just we haven't identified targets for them. Um, but these, these uh, subtypes can switch about 15 or 20% of the time. So it is important to re-biopsy over time. Um, that's going to be patient dependent and uh, many different factors play into when you would want to rebiopsy. But looking at estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 are important. Usually it's by IHC initially. And then the HER2 gene, we, you need to uh, use a dual probe fluorescent in situ assays that are well standardized across the ASCO CAP, uh, the College of um, Pathologists. Um, showing that there's amplification based on uh, specific uh, criteria. Triple negative breast cancer is the only one that we test for PD-L1 expression using IHC. That's with the 22C3 antibody. That's not going to be really covered here. And um, at recurrence or metastatic disease, germline sequencing and next generation sequencing for actual mutations is, is uh always recommended. Now that could be, you know, from a tumor biopsy or from circulating tumor DNA. Um, so those are all options that, but should be considered at any time that a patient is progressing or newly developing metastatic disease. Um, for In terms of the classification, again, this is for those who don't know this, but this is actually very important. And this actually translates because breast cancer is leading the way in HER2 positive breast cancer, and now the HER2-positive disease is applicable to GI malignancies and others. But um, if you're HER2-2+, <clears throat> then it reflexes to fluorescent in situ, and um, you would need to have a copy number to um, a CEP-17 ratio of greater than 2 to be considered amplified, or a copy number greater than 6 would be considered amplified for HER2-positivity. Um, and then if it's HER2 low, which is a new, I want to just emphasize this, this is not a new biologic subtype. It is a target that allows for drugs to get to the cancer cell and deliver chemotherapy. HER2 low is not a new biology. It just means that HER2 is not driving the cancer. It's just present on the surface of the cell. And this is where it's one plus or two plus and fluorescent in situ not amplified. And then we have HER2 negative. So HER2 low is still considered HER2 negative. It's just there's a protein on there, but it's not driving the cancer. So that's, it's just want to emphasize that home. But HER2 low is a new entity that has revolutionized the face of 
HER2 positive or, or breast cancer in general. And we'll get into a little bit of that later. But HER2 negative, stone cold negative is IHC zero and fluorescent in situ, um, not amplified. I just want to emphasize this is a confusing topic and, and we're still working through a lot of this, but HER2 low will probably work its way into other disease entities. So you probably, it would be worthwhile knowing this. All right, so back to you for a case study. Great. So here's our first case study. Julie, a 57-year-old woman with right flank pain, headache, and a four-centimeter mass in her right breast. She has no relevant family history or past medical history, no existing CVD, diabetes, or hypertension. She gets a core biopsy and she has invasive ductal carcinoma. Her molecular testing shows ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 positive, IHC3 positive. Her PET and CT scans show three lesions in the right lobe of the liver with the greatest uh, lesion diameter, 1.5 centimeters. And the brain MRI shows two brain lesions, both less than a centimeter. She underwent stereotactic radiosurgery uh, to treat the brain lesions. <clears throat> she received the recommended THP for six cycles and then HP with endocrine therapy. She achieved partial response at three months in metastatic sites and one lesion no longer measurable. She remains stable on follow-up now for 18 months, and at 24 months, her PET reveals progression in the liver, growth in one existing lesion plus one new lesion, and in the brain, MRI shows lesions are now stable. Well, uh, let's go through initially, you know, what this patient had, which was we, we'd fondly refer to as the Cleopatra regimen. Uh, so Sandy Swain and others uh, put together docetacryl, uh, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, and they wanted to compare this uh, to really see what the benefit of the pertuzumab would be in metastatic disease. And this was a landmark study. And you can see here, compared to placebo, these are all patients with virtual metastatic disease. They received pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and docetaxel versus docetaxel, trastuzumab, and placebo. So the pertuzumab was the was the additional thing. So um, <clears throat> pertuzumab is a, um, I commonly use this Lego analogy. Just just bear with me for one second. I'll make it brief. So imagine with me, there's, you know, uh, different, you know, red and orange Legos on the surface of the cell. So, and there's a tail that goes onto the inside of the cell. And as the two red Legos come together, that's called homodimerization of the HER2 and HER2 protein coming together. Well, trastuzumab, and once those bind together, those Legos bump into each other, then the tail wags and it tells the cells to divide. If you have, <clears throat> that's called the homodimerization and, and that's the HER2 and HER2 communicating. Where if you have the orange Lego and the red Lego bumping together, that's heterodimerization. And that also, that, that would be representing HER3 and HER2 bumping together and causing those tails to wag on the inside of the cell to allow the cancer cells to grow. So trastuzumab will bind to the red Lego, so it allows no red-to-red -red connection, so it stops the homodimerization. The pertuzumab binds to the HER3, uh, the orange Lego, and it stops the orange Lego from binding to the red Lego. HER3 was identified shortly after HER2 from that previous um, slide showing the time frame when, when things were uh, identified, but HER3 was shown to be a known mechanism of resistance. And so that's how pertuzumab came onto the market because let's try to block the mechanism of resistance at the beginning. And so this Cleopatra study was saying, well, there was lots of safety data showing that this was safe and uh, safe to give in patients with refractory breast cancer. So they came up with a study where at the time there was really no, it was just trastuzumab and chemotherapy as the first line agent. And so um, this study uh, was the first to to put a, a triplet combination and pertuzumab is very well tolerated. And you can see here that pertuzumab added significant benefit in overall survival. It was about a 17 month or 1.7 you know, month. It was a 17 month benefit of overall survival, which at the time was astronomical and it still is uh, in a lot of ways. And so uh, this became the standard treatment to offer patients um, as a first line setting. And it still is today. And honestly, I don't know if this will really go away because it is pretty well tolerated. Patients get 
docetaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab for six cycles of induction treatment. And then they go on to receive trastuzumab and pertuzumab indefinitely, which is super well tolerated. And I have patients who are on, you know, cycle 131, doing very well with no evidence of disease. So um, when you, when thinking about toxicity profile, there's going to be, this is a very high bar for this to go away um, anytime soon. And, and that's important. I just want to hear that because this is, there's newer drugs that we're going to get into with these antibody drug conjugates, um, which are completely changing the face of HER2 positive and triple negative breast cancer in, in very positive ways. Uh, for those who aren't, aren't aware of antibody drug conjugates, just to briefly go over what they are, they have an antigen binding site. They have usually very high affinity and avidity for a specific antigen. In our case, that antigen is HER2. They are internalized and they usually they can have a linker that either is either stable or it is allows for it to be cleaved. So a cleavable or an uncleavable linker. That's super important for what's called this uh, bystander effect. I'll get to that later. Um, and then the payload is usually a cytotoxic agent um, that allows for it to get internalized and bind uh, to either parts of the DNA and be able to cause, uh, you know, cell death. Um, they do have reduced toxicity. So many of these chemotherapy backbones, if you were to give similar doses IV, uh, would quite literally kill somebody. So these are, they have incredibly potent cytotoxic payloads um, that would otherwise not be able to be given um, to patients safely uh, without this antibody drug conjugate. There's two that we have. There's TDM1 and then there's TDXD. Um, TDXD is a much more potent agent, um, in terms of its, you can see here, uh, TDM1 as a microtubular inhibitor. That's the DM1. And the deruxtecan is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. The Amelia study and Teresa study was, were the studies that looked, um, looked at TDM1 and the Amelia one, which, um, Duke was the lead site on, um, led to TDM1 being the standard second line agent. That's all changed now, and TDXD has been compared to that, and we'll we'll get to that data in a second. But looking at this in the destiny, destiny. So whenever you hear like the destiny studies, that's always going to be with trastuzumab, deruxtecan. There's going to be a whole slew of these. We're up to like destiny thirteen at this point with ongoing studies, and I imagine this will continue to move forward. So let's start with the one of the first ones that came out, the Destiny 03 that's relevant for us. This was looking at, so if TDM1 was the standard second line agent after THP, based on the Cleopatra data that I just showed, one of the first studies came out looking at, it was the Destiny 01, but um, that just showed that it was, TDXD was, had really great efficacy in in refractory HER2 positive breast cancer, like median lines of therapy was something like five lines or more of therapy and patients were having, you know, great responses for long periods of time. So it's natural now with the drug development strategy to move forward into an early, earlier metastatic disease setting. And so they wanted to compare this head to head versus TDM1, which was the standard of care, um, all given, uh, HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer previous trastuzumab and ataxane in the metastatic setting or neoadjuvant with recurrence. Clinically stable, previously treated brain mats were permitted, good ECOG status, at a median of two prior lines of therapy. Um, and the primary endpoints being progression-free survival and secondary being overall survival and other ones that you can see here. And the data was fundamentally practice changing, where you can see that TDXD based on primary uh, progression-free survival, which was the primary endpoint, was far superior um, compared to TDXD. This is, again, like, so the other one was 17 months. I mean, this is like a whopping 22 months of progression-free uh, progression survival and also improved overall survival where actually the median overall survival in this study hadn't been reached, um, whereas TDM1 it already had. So clearly statistically significant, but more importantly, clinically, really clinically meaningful for our patients. Um, and so this became now, trastuzumab deruxtecan became now the standard second line option for patients with HER2 positive 
metastatic breast cancer after THP. So you can see here, there were some patients who they had stable brain meds, right? So they, they were allowed. So they looked back and said like, oh, so of those patients who had brain metastases, um, how many had responses? And because they were stable going into it, so they weren't, they were still present, just not growing. And so TDXD, we can see that there was a great intracranial response with um, 23 patients have us having a complete response or partial response. Um, and then there was a smattering of patients who had some stable disease and one with progression. Um, whereas TDM1 still can penetrate the intracranial space, but clearly not as much uh, CRs or but uh, about the same amount of PRs, but more with stable disease and more with progression. So um, something about the maybe the topoisomerase uh, uh, backbone, like the chemotherapy drug or how this drug is delivered. Um, one, one key component between the two of them is that TDXD has a cleavable linker, which allows for it to be cleaved. And what that means is as it's getting sort of in endocytosed into the cell, it's simultaneously having those balls of chemotherapy cleaved that get, they can um, direct that payload into the cancer cell or to the adjacent cancer cell. So if there's like a HER2 low or HER2 negative cancer cell that that antibody isn't binding to, it's delivering the payload of chemotherapy just next to it. TDM1 does not have a cleavable linker. So the bystander effect is a lot less with that situation. And so you could, that that's part of the hypothesis of why maybe this was a lesser drug because taxanes, which, which intancine is one of the, it's a microtubule inhibitor. It's a taxane backbone, um, or a really potent one at that. Um, it, it showed, uh, it, it just wasn't as effective. And so it should be effective. Um, but the, part of the reason that we think it wasn't is just because it wasn't cleaved off and, and there's less bystander effect. So the tuxedo study was, um, Looking at patients with, uh, again, it's a small phase two trial of trastuzumab deruxtecan. This is in patients with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer with active brain metastases. And that's important because there's the HER2 climb regimen that looked at tucatinib. We'll get to that later. But we, and we don't have a, a bona fide, uh, study that's been large focusing on brain meds, uh, for, for trastuzumab deruxtecan yet. It is ongoing. So we will have that data soon, but you can see intracranial response rate 73%, small numbers, but that's huge. That's on par with what we're seeing in the HER2 climb regimen, if not better, but again, small numbers. So don't know if it's really directly comparable. Um, but this is in patients with progressing disease after local therapy. So something to consider, and actually it's been still my go-to um, using this data uh, to give trastuzumab deruxtecan in patients with progressing uh, or active brain metastases. All right, so back to you for another uh, question, it looks like. Dr. Force, I'll turn it back over to you. There are dose reductions that can be given. Um, just know that TDM1 uh, it starts at 3.6 mg per kg. Both of these are given every three weeks. And then you can go down to 3 and 2.4 mg per kilogram in TDM1. Um, in TDXD, it starts out at 5.4. In GI, which this is also approved, it's at a higher dose. I forget the, forget the dose. I think it might be uh, 6.2, but don't quote me on that. Um, it's it's a high. They start out at a higher dose in GI malignancies for trastuzumab deruxtecan. Um, but in, in, in HER2 positive breast cancer, it's 5.4 and then we can dose reduce to 4.4 and 3.2. Um, things to consider with, uh, both when monitoring, especially with TDX, you need to get CT scans in, in HER2, uh, positive breast cancer or HER2 low if this is, if this is being given to them, um, to monitor for interstitial lung disease. Um, and we need to, you need to do those at really nine, nine weeks from initiating it to look for asymptomatic uh, pulmonary infiltrates uh, for concern of developing interstitial lung disease and pulmonary fibrosis. So the optimal sequence of HER2 targeted agents is now becoming controversial. I think, you know, the O3 study demonstrated significant overall survival. While the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, I could have probably highlighted that more, um, that it was approved because of, it met its primary endpoint, but primarily it was approved because it made people live longer. Um, this was approved in May 2022 for uh, HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. 
and um, in patients who received one uh, prior treatment to anti-HER2 uh, therapy in the metastatic setting or a neoadjuvant therapy that then had a disease recurrence within six months of completing that therapy. Um, and then based on the Destiny 03 study, TDXD was associated with significant improvement of PFS and OS compared to TEM1, allowing for its uh, approval. And uh, the small Tuxedo 1 study reported that TDXD has intracranial activity against active brain metastases, whereas in the um, Destiny 03, those patients had stable disease. And so um, there, there is a question of, you know, whether or not a drug can decrease growth in something that's that's growing versus it's already stable. Um, we know that that many times those that the stable disease can remain stable for many, many months. So now the tuxedo study was an important yet small study. So just uh, considering TDXD for eligible patients after one line of therapy of anti-HER2 therapy. So here's the proposed strategy for managing patients with HER2-positive breast cancer. And first, I just want to highlight, it's great to see options. And I know patients love it, that we have options for them. And I commonly tell them that. I mean, we don't want patients to give up hope. We want to be realistic. At least I am always trying to be realistic and have goals of care conversations with them for the beginning. But at the onset, these options can work. And as you saw, you know, it's, you know, 22 months of overall survival advantage. So above and beyond, you know, TDM1. And then there's other options now that go beyond TDXD. So this, this field is shifting really rapidly. Um, but you can see here, uh, Still, Cleopatra's study is is still queen or king, however you want to look at it. It's a taxane, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab. And it's the reason why it's a taxane, sorry, just real quick, is that it is common that we will give weekly paclitaxel instead of docetaxel every every three weeks with trastuzumab and pertuzumab. It's a little bit more tolerable, um, less neuropathy, less myelosuppression, um, and, and then, but after six treatment cycles, the taxane stopped. And sometimes we'll even do two weeks on, one week off, especially for more frail patients or ones, uh, so that we, we can't mess around. So that's why it's a taxane and paclitaxel, a braxane, uh, or nab paclitaxel rather, um, or docetaxel. Any of those three are reasonable options to combine. And we have lots of data for the combination of those. So just want to highlight that. So it's, it's not always docetaxel or septin and progetta, it's other chemotherapy options uh, as long as they're taxing. And then trastuzumab and pertuzumab in the maintenance setting. And again, have lots of patients who are on that for years without evidence of disease. So high bar to hit uh, for these other drugs that have toxicity to overtake that. Second line agent now would be TDXD. Um, how TDM1 now falls into this, it's technically maybe like a third line option. Many might skip over it, though, and go straight to tucatinib, trastuzumab, and capecitabine, especially with 50% of patients developing brain metastases. And this is where, you know, that third-line option, you know, in patients who are complaining of, like, a little bit of excessive nausea, they have excessive fatigue, they have maybe, maybe like, a little bit of, of a headache, um, you know, you should have a really low threshold to do imaging of the intracranial space um, and have a high degree of suspicion for brain metastases. Um, so just want to um, just point that out. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so here's some other, other agents. We're going to go into some of the data, not all um, of these different ones you can read here, but even I, I believe some of you had you know, uh, chosen neratinib and keep cytobine, that still is a bona fide option. And we've got good data for that still. So there, there are options that we can use, um, in this disease. And it's great to see that we have these options can really personalize care based on side effect profile, patients' needs and what their wishes are. So that's, it's great that we're at that point. Many diseases aren't. And so we're lucky for that. So going on to, to catnib, um, this tyrosine kinase inhibitor, this has been, you know, the, I mentioned the HER2 client uh, study. You know, this is, it's a well-tolerated tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, it's active in combinations with capecitabine, trastuzumab, TDM1. Uh, the key thing about this drug is that it has, so EGFR is considered HER1, and then there's HER2, HER3, and HER4. 
Um, EGFR, it's not been clear, like how does that play a role in breast cancer? There's been lots of studies looking at EGFR antagonism to date. They've been negative. And um, so it's really, that's not a standard practice for us. And obviously in colorectal cancer, that's that's a very standard and, and many other components, but not not so much for breast cancer. So this, it's been thought, you know, if, if you have these pan-HER inhibitors like neratinib, for instance, in, which binds and, and, and extremely inhibits EGFR, leading to lots of GI toxicity, is that really beneficial or not? And it's been shown that it probably isn't. And so this has a lower affinity for EGFR, less EGFR-associated toxicity than other HER2-targeted uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and most importantly, has excellent, excellent CNS penetration. So much so that Seattle Genetics, which I think they just got bought out by Pfizer, but uh, they um, came together for the, the HER2-CLIMB study, which had an emphasis on patients with uh, had brain metastases, like well over 40, uh, well over 50% of the population had um, active or untreated and some with stable, uh, uh, brain metastases. So it really like brain metastasis focused study. Carrie Anders here at Duke was one of the primary uh, principal investigators on that study and we enrolled heavily on it. Um, primary endpoint was progression free survival and overall survival in, um, in the brain mets only because they had such a large population became a key secondary endpoint. And as you can see here, uh, progression-free survival um, being the primary endpoint, you can see that tocatinib, trastuzumab, and capecitabine was superior. You see that the addition of tocatinib improved progression-free survival across all subgroups. Didn't matter on age, race, hormone receptor status. So I alluded to that earlier. Um, we don't... Um, necessarily give endocrine therapy with this strategy um, and the presence of brain metastases. So improved overall progression-free survival. Overall survival also, um, it was improved. You can see here that there was a 27% reduction in the risk of death. Um, so addition of tucatinib improved overall survival across all the subgroups, again, uh, including hormone receptor status and brain metastases. These were the HER2 climb study and the destiny studies were kind of ongoing <clears throat> when these were, you know, being reported in 2020. Um, so at the time it was kind of unclear. Well, should we give the HER2 climb regimen or trastuzumab deruxecan for brain metastases? And then the tuxedo study came out shortly after all of this. And we realized that, you know, there's, while this is a great option, the HER2 climb regimen, it's a lot of pills. They're taking a lot of tucatinib, they're taking a lot of capecitabine, which is BID, and then they're coming in with Herceptin and copays could be high. So you have to look for insurance. What's well, going to be out of pocket costs? We certainly don't want financial toxicity to impact our patients. And so, um, that's just things that you need to think about. But when you look at intracranial activity, you know, 48, 0.9% um, are having, you know, overall survival. Um, so median overall survival with Tucatin was nine, uh, just round up, say, 10 months longer than with placebo. Um, so uh, active brain metastases. Now, it's not really fair to, to look at a cross-trial comparison of like 13 patients, which is what they did in the tuxedo study. You know, response rates were 73%. That's not the same thing as overall survival. So, um we don't know truly if there's going to be the same degree of overall survival with trastuzumab deruxtecan compared to the HER2-CLIMB regimen actively being studied, but similar response rates not shown here. The uh, response rates are, are about 68% for uh, the tucatinib regimen, and it's, it was like 73% in, in trastuzumab deruxtecan. So similar response rates, uh, I'd say, across the board. You can see here basically 30 months of follow-up time. You can see the, the numbers here all still favoring uh, benefit of tucatinib. There's other TKIs, as I mentioned, neratinib and lipitinib. Uh, lipitinib is, is um, it's a reversible dual HER2 and, and EGFR inhibitor. It's very, very um, specific. Um, you know, this, there was phase three trial comparing this uh, lipitinib and capecitabine versus capecitabine alone. And um, there was, you know, benefit, so still an option. And neratinib, uh, it's an irreversible pan-HER inhibitor, great CNS penetration. The NALA study is really what led to its um, approval um, and still can be used. And so in patients who have progression after these drugs, um, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, HER2-CLIMB, 
These are still bona fide options to consider in your patients, assuming they can tolerate it. Here's the NALA study, um, not as um, you know, not as uh, robust as you can tell from the uh, from the hertuclim or trastuzumab drug seeking, but nonetheless, it is um, it, there is a, a benefit of about 2.2 months um, in progression-free survival. This is neratinib or lipitinib added to keep cytobine in metastatic breast cancer from two lines of prior HER2-directed uh, therapy, uh, PFS and OS. Um, and you can see here the, the overall survival is really not met when looking at the co-primary endpoint. Um, still, uh, based on two prior lines of therapy, you know, looking at even just progression-free survival over a couple of months um, is, is still beneficial um, for patients. And here's just the, the focus of the, um, the CNS benefit. And you can see here, <clears throat> you know, time to intervention for CNS disease. This is, you know, um, I think uh, an important clinically meaningful endpoint uh, where patients might have like stable disease and they're starting on lipitinib or neratinib. And you can see here that there's a little bit longer time to intervention with the use of neratinib and capecitabine. Um, and there is a CNS progression-free survival um, was improved with neratinib and capecitabine. Um, but these were really small numbers and um, not statistically significant. So still both options for patients, though. Here's some dosages, um, just briefly to go through this. This will be in your handout, um, but know that uh, catnib, 300 milligrams uh, twice daily, neratinib. Neratinib is important that you start out at uh, as sort of a dose, uh, uh, a dose, um, you start at the lowest dose and you will increase it over uh, the month uh, or a couple of weeks. And so it starts out, you start out at with the 40 milligram tablets and then you can work your way up to the 240 milligram once daily, um, giving it um, on 21 day cycle. Um, so do want to start at the low dose and go up and then amp and then uh, provide an intensified emodium regimen. Um, and that, that can really decrease the rates of diarrhea significantly with that approach. So do remember that strategy if you're going to ever use neratinib. Um, and it's given with capsetabine as, as in the NALA study. Um, and then uh, this is the neuratum dose es escalation schedule, as I just mentioned. You're starting uh, using the 40 milligram tablets, so they take three and then four, and then they'll go up to the 240 milligrams over three weeks, um, and then giving the Imodium regimen over that time. That will really help with uh, minimizing diarrhea. Um, <laughs> and then lipitinib, uh, 1,250 milligrams once daily, and then you can go down to 1,000 and 750. So the optimal use of HER2-targeted tyrosine kinases uh, inhibitors for patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer and brain metastases. So the HER2-tyrosine kinases have known CNS penetration. Data from clinical trials show systemic CNS benefit. Uh, standard of care for patients with singled or, or limited brain metastases continues to be radiotherapy. Uh, surgery and radiotherapy, if possible, of uh, CNS lesions. We have a brain and spine metastasis center completely dedicated to this um, here at Duke, where we're very aggressive with uh, SRS. So for the record, patients with you know, upwards 15, 20 brain metastases, most centers will offer whole brain radiation. Here, we may actually consider stereotactic radiotherapy to salvage and, and use uh, whole brain radiation later. So I, I think that's a really key point um, to push your radiation oncologist to think about SRS more often, um, even with large degrees of tumor burden, because we have seen in our hands that we're able to salvage and, and keep those patients alive with good quality of life because there's less cognitive decline when, when you don't have to provide whole brain radiation. Um, in light of time, I'm going to skip over some of these other things, but just to you know emphasize that uh, for patients with progressive brain metastases, consider treatment with a HER2 tyrosine kinase inhibitor. All right, so I'm going to breeze through this because margituximab, it's an interesting drug. We've been focused on, you know, as I mentioned, with those Legos binding into each other and stopping, uh, you know, those from, from binding together. Um, one, one thing that is a mechanism of action of uh, HER2-targeted agents, specifically the monoclonal antibodies, as the, there's upregulation of the immune system. Not like immunotherapy, but it's an innate immune 
component and that allows for undivided drug uh, cellular cytotoxicity. That's what ADCC stands for. It allows for basically just the innate immune system, like an inflammatory response at the tumor site and potentially natural killer cells to come in and, and target the, the HER2 pro- protein and cancer cell. Um, as you can see by this, um, cartoon figure here on the right. And so they, they realized that CD16, which is an area that natural killer cells bind to, um, could we create an antibody that allows for helping the immune system to see that HER2 cancer cell as being present? And so margituximab was created with the thought that there might be specific alleles that patients have with this FC gamma R3A, um, component and, and, can it can we increase affinity for this target, allowing for natural killer cells to get to that tumor cell more readily? Um, as the essentially the trastuzumab or in this case margituximab uh, is able to bind and, and help to decrease um, cancer growth. So the Sophia study, patients who had you know lots of therapy in this situation is greater than two lines, um, and they did allow for stable brain mets. And you can see here there was 5.7 versus 4.4 months of benefit, 27% reduction in risk of progression, probably clinically meaningful, especially given that many of these had several different treatments. Uh, so it led to the Sophia uh, margituximab being uh, approved. They looked at the that this allele um, where if they were heterozygotes or they were homozygotes, if there was differences, and you can see there's numerically and, and statistically significant if in margituximab group, if they had this allele present, it's not something that you would look for because all patients benefited. Um, and, uh, but nonetheless, it seems like the, you could get the allele. It seems like historically about 80% of, of people will have this allele. So you can send it. It's a send out test, but it doesn't change management. This is like, uh, now, you know, fourth line or fifth line agent. Um, so, you know, Patients are going to you'd be anticipating less responses due to tumor heterogeneity, um, but you can send out this this CD sixteen A one fifty eight F to look for if if this allele is present. This is more important. I want to just emphasize some of this. I'll, I'll quickly pass it back to you, and then hopefully uh, get enough time to answer uh, to go through the side effects. So here's our case study again, Julie, three months after starting TVXD for her progressive HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, and she reports new shortness of breath. Her chest CT shows new pulmonary infiltrates. Bronchoscopy shows an inflammation process, but not lymph angiotic spread. And she's diagnosed with grade 2 interstitial lung disease, or ILD. And I'll turn it back over to Dr. Force. So for the HER2 climb regimen, just to emphasize that uh, what you can see here in the in the far right, there's a significant increase in hepatotoxicity with tocatinib. Um, there is increases in diarrhea and hand-foot syndrome, um, or that's palmar plantar erythrodysthesia. But just to emphasize that you need to uh, monitor for LFTs with tocatinib. Um, Tocanabol, and I'm not going to read through this, but just to, to emphasize that this can cause diarrhea and hepatotoxicity, and you can manage, monitor and manage, and that's uh, located here. Back to you for the question. And Dr. Force, I'll turn it back over to you. Uh, yep. And then based on the NALA data, and I've, I've uh, highlighted this, you can see the overwhelming, I mean, look at all grade diarrhea, 83%. Um, so it's very important. Um, same thing with 66% with lipitinib and kepsilidabine. Um, so <clears throat> there was thankfully no grade four diarrhea, but just to put it in perspective, grade two diarrhea is having bowel movements four to six times a day. Grade three is over that. So, um, making sure that we're minimizing the account, the time that patients, I mean, you can't like leave your house with that degree of diarrhea. That's a quality of life issue. That's, you know, big time. So, um, dose escalation. Um, for neratinib is, is key to minimizing this. And we can get this to under 20% with all grade diarrhea. The preventative strategy is really the dose escalation and giving patients, um, giving patients the high intensified emodium regimen can minimize things, uh, dramatically. Um, lopiramide, cholestopol, and, um, the neratinib dose all can be helpful. Uh, 
I'll let you guys read through this um, for the the adverse events with Naranib. I really want to get to this. So the the pneumonitis, this is a major issue with interstitial lung disease, um, needs to be monitored. You can see here that there's significantly higher rates of interstitial lung disease. We don't know why, um, but things that really need to be monitored um, for ILD and pneumonitis uh, with patients receiving trastuzumab deruxtecan. Uh, you can see here that there's higher degrees um, of lung toxicity that's frequent amongst oncology drugs. There is lung toxicity across, uh, that's frequent across oncology drugs. Um, ILD is characterized by ineffective gas exchange, um, and it can cause fibrosis, essentially hardening of the alveoli, where they just can't exchange oxygen and they can die. I've had a, two patients have this happen, and it can be very abrupt, quick, and, and progress quickly. So you need to take action, need to follow with CT scans, like I said, and they initiate trastuzumab deruxtecan, and then they will follow with um with CT scans every nine weeks initially, and then you can go out to really every three months after a few cycles. Um, but you do need to monitor, and if you do see somebody with just fluffy infiltrates and they're completely asymptomatic, you need to stop TDXD immediately and put them on steroids. Um, I think the next slide has this. So these are the strategies for ILD. Um, if you suspect it, um, again, could be if they have a cough, like literally they have a new cough, even if they've been exposed to somebody who's sick, you need to suspect ILD. Um, get a CT with ILD protocol and promptly investigate interstitial lung disease. Involve a pulmonologist immediately. A CT with ILD protocol is a high-resolution CT, um, but definitely get a pulmonologist involved. Um, if indicated, I would have develop a close relationship. We have a great one way here at Duke, and and uh, we'll you know commonly bronch these patients to rule out inflammation versus infection, um, and you know help us understand what we can do. Pulmonary function tests may be helpful. They yet have yet to really been uh, demonstrate a, a real need. The grade one toxicity hold um, until it's resolved under zero. Give them. Uh, either half or one mg per kg of prednisone, and then follow with the CT scan in 28 days. If resolved, you can go to the first dose reduction. That's in patients who have grade one. That's somebody who is clinically asymptomatic. If they have a cough, that's considered grade two. And in that situation, you want to permanently discontinue um, and, then, and still promptly initiate systemic therapy with steroids at one mg per kg are equivalent for at least 14 days and then a taper over four weeks and follow up with another CT ILD protocol to ensure that it's not progressing. So please, please, please follow with another CT scan to show that it's not progressing. If it is, you may need to um, have them admitted to the hospital for further workup and management with pulmonary involved. So here's a resuming TDXD after withholding for grade one ILD. So this is usually somebody that you just detected fluffy infiltrates on a CT scan and they're clinically asymptomatic. In those patients, um, the first published data on TDXD rechallenge came from this pooled analysis. There's nine phase one studies, all from basically the destiny studies. Of 76 patients with grade one ILD, 47 resumed TDXD as recommended, and three had a second ILD event. So many patients, for reasons that we don't know, if you have grade one, you catch it early, treat it so it's grade zero, you can resume. You'd want to give them a dose reduction, but you can resume, and only a small proportion would have a second ILD event. If they have a second ILD event, it's over. You need to permanently discontinue. Just want to really emphasize that because that's that's a hot topic and and I hopefully that was helpful. Um, last couple of minutes, uh, Sophia with margituximab starting dose is 15 mg per kg every three weeks. I'll let you guys throw, uh, go through this. This is something you'll be using in the fifth line. Fatigue, nausea, diarrhea are more uh, prevalent in this. I think many of you know how to to, to manage those, so I won't go go through that. Um, and cardiotoxicity. Um, you know, trastuzumab-based therapy is always associated with LVF decline and heart failure. So monitoring appropriately um, and all of the different agents. Uh, there, For what reasons, the, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors appear to have less cardiomyopathy compared to the antibodies or antibody drug conjugates, um, but nonetheless still need to monitor periodically. Um, 
And uh, the ADCs and March checks have not been studied in patients with LVF of less than 50% of baseline. I, I still think it's reasonable to offer, just need to monitor. Um, and lipitinib, you need to, to follow with QTC prolongation. Um, here's the cardiac safety from all of these hertrude targeted direct therapies, the Safe Heart study. And um, just in light of time, I'll let you guys uh, read this on your own. Um, and uh, same here with the, the the approach to cardiovascular monitoring. I mean, you do need to monitor um, really with echocardiograms and then a baseline EKG, um, and then withholding treatment if you see that there's a decline in their in their EF or if there's QTC prolongation that's happening. And and this is all labeled here for you for you to read. And um, obviously, neutropenia, LV dysfunction. We've gone through. There is embryo-fetal toxicity and hepatotoxicity specifically um, with like tecatinib, for instance, and then the interstitial lung disease. Please don't forget about that and how to monitor with um, with respect to um, uh, trastuzumab deroxycan. So um, treatment-related toxicity is very depending upon therapy used. Diarrhea, quality of life is a major issue, can be severe. Um, up titrating the dose of granib with antidiarrheal prophylaxis is successful. Monitoring for hematologic toxicities with um, TDXD and ILD with TDXD. Um, cardiac toxicity can occur across the board, so EKG um, and uh, treatment interruption needed. And, and then the ILD pneumonitis uh, is more frequent with TDXD um, compared to anything and initiation of corticosteroids until grade one, so educate patients on unique adverse events associated with her two targeted therapies. And um, managing expectations should be at the key for everything. Um, and we are running over by one minute, so I'll, I'll let you guys kind of read this over at your own time. Okay, so consider TDXD for eligible patients after one line of therapy uh, for patients with progressive brain mets. Uh, consider her 2 carrying kinase inhibitor versus TDXD. Educate patients on unique adverse events. Um, and then the post-test questions. I think Dr. Forrest got that through to us today. And uh, as I said, we really had questions about adverse side effects, but I think they were answered uh, by our speaker today. And Dr. Forrest, I want to thank you. Uh, for such a wonderful uh, session this morning on HER2 uh, positive breast cancer. I certainly learned a lot, and I know our audience did too. Thank you again. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by educational grants from Exelixis Incorporated and Merck Sharpen Dome, LLC. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, Go to ReachMD.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.